0: with me to John 17 John 17 We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 verses 1 through 5 and God's providence we've had opportunity to speak much about prayer we come now to one of the passages of scripture where the mystery of prayer is quite profoundly set forth. As we look at John 17, verses 1 through 5, we'll be considering the Son of God at prayer. Give attention to God's holy word. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life, and that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the ordinance of preaching. We ask that you would bless this ordinance now, that your son might be glorified and that you might be glorified in him. Please strengthen us, O Lord, we pray by your spirit, that we might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, as Paul the Apostle said in 1 Timothy, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. As we saw last week in the Gospel of John at the end of chapter 16, Christ finishes his teaching by referring to the mystery of the Gospel. And in this passage that we now turn to, we are confronted with perhaps one of the greatest mysteries of all of Scripture, God. Praying. Who is able to approach this? Who of us is able to understand what is happening here? You know, when your wife or your husband or a brother or sister is at prayer and you, you uh, approach them and find out, oh, they're praying, we back off. Be- because we recognize that that saint is praying and there's a transaction with heaven going on. There's a deep Spiritual mystery happening. Who of us can approach it when the Son of God Himself is praying? How can we approach this without shame? Who is sufficient for these things? Nobody is. And yet, God has been pleased to record this scene for us. God has been pleased to keep the record of his son praying. And by his uh, grace, he invites us to gaze upon the son of God at prayer. And so we, like little children, drawn with a wonder at the sight of, Approach the Son of God at prayer, but let us not approach presumptuously. Here is the burning bush. Here is the angel of the covenant. Here is the one whose name is wonderful. Here is the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, which no man can see and live. Strengthened by grace, however, let us draw near with true hearts, having been sprinkled from our evil works, and as we approach, let us learn what it means to pray. What we're going to see in this passage, quite simply, is that the prayer of the Son of God is based on the cross and makes petition according to the will of God. The prayer of the Son of God is based on the cross and makes petition according to the will of the Father. Now, as we go through this passage, I'll give you an outline in just a second. As we go through this passage, I want you to tremble but also to be encouraged. Because what you're going to see is that when the Son of God himself prays, He prays the same way that we pray, based upon the cross, making petition according to the will of his Father. And so the the Son's example for our prayers is the example we should follow. And this is the great mystery, that God himself became a man and prayed like a man. As we look at the outline of this passage, we're going to pick out three things First, the Son of God's Prayer in verse 1a. Second, the Son of God's Cross in verse 1b. Finally, the Son of God's Petition in verses 2 through 5. The Son of God's Prayer in verse 1a, the Son of God's Cross in verse 1b, and the Son of God's Petition in verses 2 through 5. And so we look first at his prayer. You'll notice, perhaps if your Bible has red letters, the black letters at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven. Notice that this is the prayer he offers at the end of his teaching. After he had spoken, chapters 14 through 16, then Christ lifted up his eyes to heaven. You see here the Son of God sealing his doctrine with prayer. He's taught the disciples, and now he prays that the doctrine would have an effect in the hearts of the disciples. John Calvin, I think, rightly says, commenting on this verse, this is an example to all teachers. Now, that could be ministers of the gospel. That could be elders in Sunday school. That could be faithful people of the church in children's Sunday school. That could be fathers teaching their families. That could be husbands teaching their wives. That could be mothers teaching their children. That could be any of us who are called upon to bear witness to the gospel. The doctrine of the gospel gets nowhere without prayer. Even the Son of God himself prayed that his doctrine would be effectual. After he spoke these words, and then it says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven this introduces a very interesting topic that we find in the Scriptures. That has to do with posture in prayer. There are various postures recorded throughout the Scriptures. Sometimes the people of God are on their knees. Other times the people of God are on their faces. Other times, like the tax collector bows his head and won't even look to heaven. He's so covered in shame. We see Christ here lifting up his eyes to heaven. One of the things we need to recognize about posture in prayer is that it should always reflect the attitude of the heart the, the lord is not impressed with outward postures if the heart is not right but if the heart is in a certain attitude the posture is appropriate the posture is fitting as i mentioned there are various postures throughout scripture that we find of the godly who pray the tax collector 1 Timothy 2, Paul tells men everywhere to lift up holy hands when they pray. We find Job and Moses, when they're confronted with the glory of God, fall on their faces in prayer. There's various postures. To illustrate the importance of this, we all understand body language. At least instinctually, we know that the body reflects what the mind is thinking. The facial expression, the the posture in the chair, the, the direction of the face. This not only applies in our relationships, it applies in our relationship to God. Your body language in prayer is a reflection of the state of your heart. And I want to encourage you with some of your postures in prayer. You might try sometime kneeling in your prayer closet if you've never done that. You might try getting on your face in prayer if you've never done that. You might try lifting up your hands in prayer, in private, if you've never done that. Because you see, the attitude of the body, the position of the body, excites our minds into the appropriate attitudes. You know, it's interesting when you're training your children, you train them, at least I hope you're training them, to look at you when you're speaking. If they're not looking at you, they're not listening to you. And so the body language reflects the attitude of the heart. Likewise, in prayer, you should train your body to adopt the appropriate posture. I encourage you, try these different postures if you never have. Don't think about it as meritorious, but think about it as a way to improve your mind in prayer. Well, we see that the body, the, the body language is to reflect the attitude of the heart. Christ lifts his eyes to heaven, and this shows us that his affections were directed to heaven. That's why he lifts his eyes and cries out to his Father at this moment. The emotions of Christ are a very fascinating topic. There's, there's all kinds of hints throughout the Gospels about our Lord's emotions, He was a real flesh and blood man, without sin, but he had all the emotions that we have. He had all the affections that we enjoy, and his were perfectly sanctified. One of the things I want you to notice, however, about our Lord's emotions is that they are most heightened. They are at their highest pitch when the cross is in view. It is when our Lord approaches the cross, either in his doctrine, in the sacraments, or here in his prayer, that his emotions begin to reach a fever pitch. You remember in John uh, chapter 12, verse 50, Christ is speaking and he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's referring to the cross. And he says, oh, how I am constrained until it is accomplished. How my soul groans within me until I reach the cross. Matthew 16, 23, Peter had just made his great confession. Christ then begins teaching them, the Son of God must go to the cross. Peter rebukes him and says, not so, Lord. And then that's when Christ says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Why was Peter so offensive to Christ? Because Peter was thinking of the things of men, not the things of God. Peter was hindering him from going to the cross. Luke twenty two fifteen, 15. Christ is instituting the Lord's Supper. Turn to that passage. It's probably one of my favorite passages on this theme. Luke twenty two fifteen, 15. The night on which he was betrayed, he's in the upper room with the twelve, starting in verse 14. Notice the similarity of language, by the way. When the hour had come. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover, and as Christ is going to institute the Lord's Supper, is the sacrament of his cross. And me, Christ says, With great desire, literally in Greek, Desiring I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Why? Because Christ understands his cross is life for his elect. And then we find it here in John 17, as Christ prays on the eve of his cross. As Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Brothers and sisters, just from this opening part of verse 1, Let me encourage you, get godly affections in prayer. Whatever you have to do, get your heart tuned to the same frequency as Christ. That's what Christ is displaying for us. As he lifts his eyes to heaven in prayer, all of his affections are looking to his heavenly Father, anticipating the cross. Our catechism speaks about the right way to perform prayer. Not only must it be in faith, according to the will of God, in the name of the Son, but it must also be with the appropriate affections, the appropriate apprehensions. Get godly affections in prayer. The Psalms are one of your best guides for this. You go and read the Psalms and what the psalmists say. uh, My heart pants like a deer after the water brooks. Tears of water run down my eyes. My bones ache and uh, roar within me. The Psalms are your best guide for this. And so the Son of God prays, lifting his eyes to heaven, and he bases his prayer on the cross. Look at what happens in verse 1b. He says, Father, the hour has come. This, of course, is the hour of the cross. Christ has finished his teaching He's finished all of his other work, and now he's come to this great hour. The cross, it was the center of all of our Lord's teaching. It was the center of his entire life. Everything he did was leading up to this very moment, this hour. The cross was not only the center of our Lord's life, it was also the center of God's plan from all eternity, Revelation 13.8 says that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. The cross was also the center of the Spirit's prophecy. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First <clears throat> Peter chapter 1. Peter writes of this great salvation. chapter 1 verse 10 and he says of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully and prophesied of the grace that would come to you searching what or what manner of time the spirit of christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of christ and the glories that would follow i I hope you're catching the theme The center of the work of the entire Trinity. God the Father's decree. God the Son's incarnation. God the Spirit's prophecy. All of it centered on the cross. Now the hour is here. And Christ lifts up his eyes to heaven. Not only is it the center of the Trinity's work, it was also and still is the center of angelic intelligence. You ever think about that? Angels are mightier than you and I. They understand more than you and I do. They are stronger, mightier. They never tire. They never wear out. They can perceive far more than we can. That's why the angels of the Old Testament are described as being full of eyes. Their intelligence is far beyond ours. And the centerpiece of the angels' inquiries is the cross. Keep reading in 1 Peter. Verse 12, to them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The things that angels talk about, the things that angels think about, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hour of the cross is when all the desires of heaven would be fulfilled. And so Christ says, Father, the hour has come. Note also that he addresses God as Father. You remember the way that our Lord taught us to pray. When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Christ prays in exactly the same way here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the greatest encouragements for us to pray. The way that the Lord taught us to pray is the exact same way that the Lord prayed. The things that we hope to receive from prayer are the exact same things that Christ received from prayer. The centerpiece of our prayers is the cross of Christ. The centerpiece of his prayer is his own cross. Pray, brothers and sisters. If you are negligent in your prayer life, you will not prosper. Look at King Saul. He failed to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord killed him and took his kingdom. Pray, brothers and sisters, just as the Son of God prayed. Notice also, he says, Father, the hour has come... Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It is the cross where the Father is glorified. Nothing else, I'm sorry, nothing less and nothing more. It is the cross where the Father is glorified. That's why Christ prays in this vein. Notice as we apply this a little bit to ourselves, Christ, I admit this is a great mystery, Christ, who is God in the flesh, when he came to obey his Father's will by dying on the cross, prayed. Let me say that again. Christ, who was the only son of uh, mankind that was without sin, Christ, who is the eternal Son in the flesh, without sin, without fault, holy and harmless, when it came to obeying his Father's will, prayed. How much more do we need to pray to obey the will of our Father? Who are we to presume we can do the least good in our own power? He who is power-incarnate, pray to be able to obey his Father. Who are we to think we can do anything else? You ever ask yourself, what makes the difference between men? What makes the difference between one Christian and another? Why does one prosper in the faith, and why does one not prosper? Why, why does one seem to go from strength to strength, and why does one seem to not go from strength? to strength well there there could be many reasons it could be God's will that that saint is suffering for a time for his secret purposes but nine times out of ten the difference is prayer nine times out of ten those who are prospering in the Christian faith do so because they pray just as the son of God prays as I mentioned it is the cross which glorifies the Father. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the real theme of Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church in, in the first letter. Uh, Corinthians 1 verse 18. I'll just read a few of these passages. 1 Corinthians 1 18. Paul writes and says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, The Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is the cross where God has chosen to be glorified. Never forget it. Well, we've seen the Son of God, his prayer, at least his posture in prayer. We've seen that his prayer centers on the cross. Now we need to see what Christ actually prayed for. What were his petitions? At least at this opening chapter, this opening section of his prayer. We turn now to verses 2 through 5. Notice, first off, the Son of God prays in accordance with his Father's will. Look at what he says in verse 2. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. First off, the reason Christ is requesting this glorification is for the salvation of the elect. This is a reference to the elect that God the Father had given him. And Christ makes his appeal to the Father based on the Father's will. It is the Father's will to save his elect through the death of the Son of God. Therefore, Christ prays to that end. Calvin makes another great comment on this passage, especially this section right here. He he points out, one, that Christ is praying in light of the Father's promises to him. God the Father has given Christ authority to give eternal life to as many as he chooses. And then Christ prays that promise back to God. And Calvin says this. He says, we see here the right use of the promises because the promises are given to us to excite our prayers. The promises are not given to us to stick in our back pocket. The promises are given to us to guide and direct our prayers, even as the Son of God prays in accordance with his Father's promises. He prays for the salvation of the elect through the knowledge of God. Now you see in verse 3, the Son has been given authority to give eternal life to as many as God the Father had given him, Then in verse 3 he says, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And we come now to the fringes of this mystery. This is a profound and deep mystery when Christ speaks about salvation through knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. This is very hard to explain because it is such a mystery. This, by the way, is the mystery that Paul writes about in Ephesians. He says, This is the mystery that's been hidden from ages and from generations. This is the sum of all wisdom and knowledge, Colossians chapter 2. This is the truth that is higher than all other truth that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to him, but committing the word of reconciliation to his ministers, and pleading with sinners to be reconciled to God, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. What a mystery! The mystery of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I know we are very familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity. I know we're very familiar with the doctrine of righteousness through faith in Christ. It's good to be familiar with these things. But it is bad to forget that these are the mysteries of eternity. This is the heart of God's eternal plan that he hid from generations and generations. These are the secret things that God promises to give those who love him. This is a profound mystery. And so Christ prays that this would happen through his cross. you notice the connection of the Lord's Prayer. Verse 1, he says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you because you've given me authority to give eternal life to as many as you have chosen And this is eternal life that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Therefore glorify me at the cross. It is through the cross that we come to know the Father and the Son. It is through the cross that we come to know the mystery of the incarnation. It is through the cross. Notice also. He bases his petition on the will of the Father, the promise of the Father. He also bases it on the justice of the Father. Look at what he says in verses 3, I'm sorry, 4 and 5. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was You notice first that he asserts his righteousness as the basis for the petition. I have glorified you. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. As he prays to his father based upon the cross, according to his promises, he now asserts his own righteousness. I have done everything that you've asked me to do. I have completed the work. Please hear my prayer. I want to share something with you, you probably don't hear very often, but it's one of the chief ways that we approach God in prayer. God's justice is your confidence in prayer. God's righteousness is your confidence in prayer. Now you may be thinking to yourself, I'm a sinner, pastor, how can I appeal to the justice of God? Well, that's through the doctrine of imputation. Remember, the reason Christ is praying to be glorified at the cross, the reason the cross is the way that the elect are saved, is because through the mystery of the gospel, God made him to be sin for you. God takes your sins and gives them to Christ and he dies. God takes Christ's righteousness and gives it to you and you live. So according to the justice of God, you are perfectly righteous in God's sight. He does not see you in your sins. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. He doesn't see you the way other men see you. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when you appeal to your father, you make a certain legal claim. Heavenly Father, according to your justice, bless me as one of your children. That's how Christ prays. That's how you can pray. Now, there's two sides to this. We'll, we'll come to this a little bit later, the two sides of the righteousness. I want you to notice, though, Luke 18, very famous parable about praying and never losing heart. Notice the place of justice in this parable. Luke 18, verse 1. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying there was a certain there was a in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. There was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, "Get justice for me from my adversary." Notice the theme, judge, give me justice. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, "Though I do not fear God nor regard man, Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, I will vindicate her, I will give her justice, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him though he bears long with them? You see how the theme of justice is part of this appeal. The unjust judge was moved to do justice. How much more will your heavenly Father, who chose you before the foundation of the world, avenge you when you pray unto him? So Christ appeals to his Father's justice. He also appeals to his own glory. Look at what he says at the end of verse 5, or in verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, I hope you'll notice that the language here refers to his own unique glory as the Son of God. He's referring to his glory as the divine second person of the Trinity, the glory that I had before the world was. He's asking the Father to glorify him, And he appeals to him as something that belongs to him by nature. It is the Son of God's natural place to be glorified. Because he is God Almighty, glory is a part of who he is. And so the Son asks him to give it back to himself. But, keep in mind, the cross is the center of all of this. What Christ is praying for his Father to do is that his divine glory would shine through his mediation that through the death of the son of god men would recognize that he is the son of god that's what he's praying for he's praying for john 828 to be fulfilled john 828 christ is speaking to the jews And they're asking him, who are you? Who do you claim to be? Tell us who you are. And Christ says constantly, I've already told you, I'm the son. God is my father. Before the world was, I am. And then he says in verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, when I am crucified, then you will know that I am he. Then you will know that I am Jehovah through the cross. You may remember the way Mark records the crucifixion. Christ was on the cross. He let out a loud cry and gave up the ghost. The temple veil was split and the centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God when Christ died on the cross. This is what he's praying for, that his glory would shine through on the cross. There's much more that we could say about this passage. There's much more that we could say about the mystery. The chief thing I want you to walk away from this passage, though, is how to pray. Pray with the right affections. Pray centered on the cross. Pray according to the will of the Father, both his promises and his justice. Pray the way John teaches us in chapter 3 of his letter. 1 John chapter 3 John summarizes this doctrine for us. 1 John 3:18 My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, I told you earlier, there's two sides to this righteousness in prayer. One is imputed righteousness from Christ. The other is your actual obedience as you live as a Christian. That's what John's talking about. If your heart does not condemn you, you have confidence before the Lord in prayer. Notice what he says in verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he gave us commandment. Brothers and sisters, Christ is given to you as your mediator. He's also given to you as your great example. Not only how to live, but how to pray and obey your Father. Pray like Him, and you will have the petitions that, God, uh, that you request of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus and His mediation. We thank You, Lord, that You have revealed to us this great mystery, that through the incarnation of the Son of God, we can be made righteous in Your sight. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to be thankful and trusting in Christ all of our days and help us to pray as he taught us. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.